are dismissed back to Praise Factory. And if you would open your Bible to the book of Colossians, uh, last week we started reading uh, in Col- the book of Colossians. We're going to spend some time there studying. And so I'm going to read from the first eight verses, and then we're going to pray and we'll uh, explore what it is that, that Paul is saying to the church in these Uh, In these words here. So Colossians chapter 1, starting in, in verse 1, reads like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole wor- in, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to spend this Time. I thank you because the scriptures teach us that the word is the revelation that you have for the world. It is what you want us to know between the time that you created the world and sent your son to be the salvation, the, the sacrifice for our sins to save us. The word is what you want us to know before you return again. And so we thank you that you've spoken to us and you have given us these words that we can consider them. And that means that whenever we gather and we read your words and consider them, that you speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can know that these are words of truth and that they have meaning for us today. And we pray that we would, we would see them for what they are, that they are a testimony to your son, Jesus, and that they are a guide for how we should live life as we interact and depend on and love a gracious God. And so we thank you for these words and we thank you for this truth and we pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the, the things that, that Paul speaks about in this, in this passage is the result of belief. He talks about what happens when people hear the gospel, when they hear the good news about Jesus and they embrace it, what happens is that there is a harvest of fruit. The, the lives of the people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus produce fruit or bear fruit. Uh, many times, as, as I'm uh, 
attempting to do a good job being a homeowner and maintaining my yard. I will be out in the yard and I'm, I'm out there either uh, destroying those plants which have, have grown up uninvited right, in my area, or I am, I am attempting to, uh, to, to like, encourage the growth of grass, you know, because we, we want that on the lawn, not just bare patches from where the, the kids are always running around. And I often will uh, have this moment of mystery where I say, what exactly is that plant right there? Like, I don't know. Do I cut that down or do I leave it alone, right? Do I, do I leave that or do I, do I destroy that? Um, and it, it often comes down to the question of what will that ultimately do? As a kid, I used to think dandelions were no problem, right? You know, they were yellow and flowery, but what happens is they grow up, right? And they produce these seeds that fly through the air with a little parachute that's built into them and they create more dandelions, right? And dandelions are a sign of, of an unhealthy weed-filled lawn, right? Think about uh, if you are going to an orchard, right? Your expectation is you're going to go and you pick your own, right? You've seen these, these signs. You can go and you can purchase those little plastic buckets and, uh, and you go out into the orchard and you go and pick whatever it is that they're advertising, whether it's blueberries or strawberries or you're going you're gonna to take a basket and you're going to go gather apples, right? You expect that what's going to be on those trees and on those bushes is, hey, there, I'm in a blueberry orchard and there's going to be blueberries here, right? You're not going to, it's not going to be open and charging money in a season where there is no fruit being produced and, and you're going to be uh, able to access and, and, and obtain what it is that they're promising to you and it's going to taste good, right? We had a, a tree in the yard growing up at my parents' house that uh, it was an apple tree. And uh, my dad would send me outside to pick up apples uh, prior to going and mowing the lawn because, you know, they cause trouble when there's all these apples all over the lawn. They get sucked up into the, the mower and, you know, they get spat out all over the place. And so he would send me out. And um, every now and again, I would get this idea like, these, this is an apple tree. Like, I should, I should just eat one of these. And they were so bitter and so nasty. Well, that's what crab apple trees produce, right? The goal of the crab apple tree, if it had a mind, is to increase its own species, right? And to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with crab apple trees. It doesn't care what this kid thinks about what the fruit tastes like. What it cares about is multiplication. What we care about is what we encounter, what we obtain when we harvest the fruit. And I would argue that is what God cares about as well. Now, as we talk about the reputation of the Colossians, I want to, I just want to, I want to head the discussion off by pointing something out. Many times the discussion of fruit and fruit bearing as it relates to the Christian life produces guilt in people, okay? We immediately begin to think, I am not producing enough fruit. 
I am not producing the right kind of fruit. And this discussion, we then suddenly become obsessed with what I am doing determines how perfect I have become in the Christian life. And I think that's counterproductive. There's a reason why when in the New Testament they speak about fruit bearing, when Jesus talks about this and when the Apostle Paul talks about fruit bearing, there's a reason why he uses this analogy. You know, when you plant an orchard, you don't run outside the next day after throwing all the seeds in the ground and expect to find fruit on the tree, right? You don't go out there the very next season and expect to find fruit on the tree. In fact, an orchard is something that's well-tended, and those trees have been there for years, and they have sunk their roots deep down, and they're well-maintained. There's a, a, a field that's full of fruit trees that's just around the block from us on, on Rock-A-Walkin Road, and, and when the growing season ends, the owner of that field, of, the, of those trees, will cut all the top branches off. Right? There's usually this giant mound of branches there that either he burns or are hauled off and thrown away somewhere. But it's, that's part of tending that, those trees and making sure that they remain healthy and productive and, and fruitful. A good orchard, a good tree that produces consistent fruit is something that takes time to cultivate. It's not about immediate result, and it's not about perfection when we talk about bearing fruit in the Christian life. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. The reputation of the Colossians, as we discussed last week, is that they were known for their faith. They were known as those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. They believed in him and they had responded to that message. Not faith in faith, right? Not just having something to believe in, but they heard the word about Jesus and they put their faith and trust in him. And then they were known for their love for all the saints. Verse 4 speaks about the fact that they had heard, that Paul had heard about their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that they have for all the saints. And he goes on in verse 5 to talk about the fact that this love and care for other believers flows from the fact that they had a hope laid up for them in heaven. Verses 5 and 6 then talk about the result of their faith their love, and their hope. When these things take root in our lives, something happens. When when we are living by faith, and we are loving, and we are hopeful of the future, something happens. God does something in our lives. We see that in verses 5 and 6, where it says, Speaking about faith and hope and love, it says, Of this you've heard in the word of truth, the gospel. That's the good news about Jesus. Verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So, so what is Paul saying happens here when we believe in Jesus and then we love those around us and we have a hope that's, that's built on what is stored up for us in heaven, what happens? 
The result is that we bear fruit. We produce something in our lives. Now, Paul says it's not just in the lives of the, of the Colossians. It's in, it, this happens everywhere with the gospel, where the good news about Jesus takes root. It's happening, verse 6 says, throughout the whole world. That, that the lives of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus produce something. Now, when we look at the passage here and we say, what kind of, of, of fruit is God producing in the world? I think that there are two or three things happening here. One is that the, the fruit that's produced by faith in Jesus and love for the saints, right, is, is twofold. Faith produces faith, right? Faith produces more faith. And love produces more love. The evidence that, that, that Christ has taken up residence in a life, that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, that someone has, has truly confessed belief in, in Jesus and that their life has been changed, the, the evidence of that, the fruit of it, is that they have faith in Jesus and love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that may sound simplistic, like, oh, faith produces faith and love produces love. But the analogy here is bearing fruit, right? It's like it's got to do with plants. Think about this. When you go out in your backyard and you break out that little packet of cucumber seeds or pumpkin seeds or whatever it is that you bought, right? I always thought it was funny that the company's named Burpee, right? It just makes me laugh. So you go, you go into the store and you pick up those burpee seeds, and you come home, and you drop them in little holes in the ground. It's a total fail if your pumpkin seeds produce watermelons, right? You, you want what you plant to produce what you intended when you planted it. Like produces like. The goal of fruit bearing, from God's perspective, is that that which he requires that which he intends is what is produced. What is it that, that God wants out of the world, right? We find it in the book of Genesis where, where God creates the world and he puts human beings into it to exist in a relationship of love one to another. And he puts them into the world in a relationship of dependence upon himself. I am the, the lawgiver. I'm the one who gives commands. You live in fellowship with me. And what happens? The human beings love one another. And they are dependent on God. And when that is fractured by their sin, God sends Jesus to take sins upon himself and to fill those who put their faith and trust in him with the spirit so that they will exercise greater degrees of faith and love. So much so, John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus talks about this as the evidence of faith and the very thing that glorifies God the Father in bearing fruit, in in demonstrating faith and practicing and, and exhibiting love, we glorify the Father. We prove that we are truly disciples of Jesus. John 15, 8 says this, by this is my Father glorified. Okay, now 
what is it that you normally think when you, when you think, am I, am I measuring up as a human being in God's eyes? Am I, am I being a good Christian? Am I doing the things that I'm supposed to, right? We often add all kinds of other things in, into that, right? It's, it's like, am I parenting perfectly? Am I giving? Am I obeying all these commands? Am I doing, I mean, we add all these things into that definition. But listen to what Jesus says. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then he says in John chapter 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the evidence. That's the fruit. That's what God intends for us to produce in our life. And so Paul is celebrating the fact here that, that the word of truth, the good news about Jesus had, had come and they had heard it and they put their faith in it. That's awesome, guys, right? Look at you believing and that the result of their belief was that they loved one another and increased in love for one another. And the word of their faith spread. Just to revisit and expand on this for a moment, what was the key to bearing this fruit, to producing it? Verse 6 said that it had come to them in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, but it's been doing that since the day they heard it and understood it. They, they heard the message they heard the truth about Jesus and what it meant for their lives, what it is that God required of them, and they understood it, and it began to produce its effect, right? The, the knowledge of the grace of God that's active in their lives, the knowledge of what, what it is that, that, that God did for them in Christ, understanding the grace of God in truth, properly motivated them or set them up to produce fruit in their lives. It's not the fear of punishment that teaches us to produce fruit in our lives. It's not the it's not a, a, a commitment to a particular flavor of belief, right? It's not, it's not um, making a decision that we want to be a certain kind of person or to be well-liked or to be known as, as other-centered or to be known as good. These things don't produce the fruit that God desires. What produces, what God is after in our lives is understanding his grace understanding his love and his mercy. Now, faith comes by hearing God's word. And when we hear God's word, we say, yes, that's true. And that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's an expression of, of saving faith. But then there's another kind of, of faith that we exercise where, where 
We're, we're not, it's not just this is the truth that saves you, but as we take steps each and every day and we say, okay, how do I react to this negative situation? How do I, how do I handle these circumstances that have suddenly come upon me? This person who doesn't, who doesn't like me and is mistreating me, how do I respond to them? This is what, what the scriptures might call walking faith, right? We're told to walk by faith and not by sight. We're to, we're to exercise a faith that's consistent with God's word. And so we say, okay, God's word says this. This is what, what God calls me to do. And so instead of reacting the way that people around me react, instead of reacting the way I feel like reacting, I'm going to seek to obey the Lord in this situation. Maybe at first you're obeying, but you're, you're, you're doing it like as a grouch. You know, I don't want to turn the other cheek. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to. But more and more, as we practice these things, it becomes easier to live this way. As we learn to depend on the Holy Spirit. We walk by faith. The scriptures say in 1 Thessalonians that we work by faith. We are enabled to pray by faith and we're able to resist attacks from Satan. Ephesians chapter 6 says, by faith. And then as we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we live lives that are characterized and marked by love. Let's talk a little bit about what the grace of God is and what it is that motivates us to bear fruit. What is it about God's grace? What's contained in that idea that is such a powerful producer of faith or of fruit rather think about if, if you if, what is what's useful about the way seeds work right is that you can you can take seeds from a plant and you can put them in a package and put them in the store and have them there and sell them and you don't have to worry about them like producing fruit right there in the store right you you you've got them if you are the burpee company, you, however, they harvest seeds. I don't know how this works. Like, do you like open cucumbers up and like shuck them and like leave them out in the sun to dry or something? I don't know. This is interesting. This is one of those questions on the level of like, how do they make hot dog buns? Like, how do you slice them so perfectly on the side? Like, what is the process? Anyway, um, I'm going to have to Google this. But you can take those seeds and you can put them in a store. And then somebody can bring them home and they add the required ingredients and then phew, growth, right? What is it about the grace of God that when we understand it produces fruit? Grace, first of all, is understanding that God has shown us undeserved kindness in Jesus Christ. That's the basic understanding of grace, right? Justice is when we do something wrong and we get punished for it and the punishment is appropriate, right? Sadly, I cannot remember when, but I, if I look at the form, it will tell me I was, uh, I believe, dropping Max off for school and as I was zipping along the road going towards school, I drove past the electric eyeball, right? 
that caught me, and then it drew these two laser lines and said, you know, you, you drove too fast, and some police officer reviewed it and signed off on it, and they sent me a note that informed me, yes, you were driving too fast, send $40, or, you know, else we take your license from you. That's an appropriate punishment for that, right? I just, I'll tell you, all right, I'm not going to even talk about what I want to do. Anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll move on. That's justice, right? Mercy, mercy is when I say, hey, please don't punish me for that. And a judge says, you know what? You are guilty, but we're not going to collect the payment from you. Go on your way and don't drive like that anymore. That's mercy. When I don't get what I deserve. Grace is when somebody looks at that ticket and says, yes, you did this. And not only are we going to pay the fine for you, but we're going to act like this never happened. We're never going to treat you like it happened. It's going to be erased from your record, right? Think about the effects if this has happened to you before. If you've, if you've ever been pulled over by an officer, if you have ever done anything while driving your vehicle that is considered particularly egregious, right? like passing a, a stationary police vehicle that has its lights on and you don't shift over to the other lane, right? they come after you and they say three points. And then your insurance company mails you and says, you now have to pay like three times as much. You know, for your and, and, and the effects are just so real. And you're like, wow, what? It's on your record for years. And then it eventually rolls off, maybe if you behave yourself. That's not the way grace works. Grace, wor- grace works like this. We cancel it out. We act as if it never happened. Now, this isn't just simply for mistakes or you drove a little too fast. This is every single way in which we fail to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are our sins before God and they stack up and pile up. And there is no way that we can cancel them out by our good works. There's no way that we can erase them Because doing something good in order to cancel out something bad is not seen as good by God. It's seen as motivated from from a heart of, of selfishness. We can't, by our good actions, cancel out our bad ones. And so God sends Jesus to us because we cannot fix ourselves. He sends someone to us. To help us. I think we can, we can break the gospel, the goodness of God's grace, down into a bunch of different ideas, right? A bunch of different terms. Sometimes people use four, sometimes they use 12. Uh, well, let's just go with, with something simple and let's, let's talk about uh, six different things that go into the grace of God. Two of them are negative and uh, four of them are positive. What happens when we become, uh, when, when we commit a sin... When, when we live in such a way that we fall short of God's standard, we fall under condemnation, right? We, we become guilty of sin. Now, when you are driving along, maybe minding your own business, 
and you drive past that electric eye, right, and, and, and it catches you speeding, right, you are guilty at that moment. And the punishment is applied to you, and there's nothing that you can do to erase it, right? You can't, you can't go and, and open up that box and, like, catch it, you know, before it gets transmitted. Like, there's nothing that you can do to erase that. I haven't tried. Maybe you can. Don't try. Yeah, don't touch that box. That's worse than speeding. Opening that thing and messing with it, I guarantee uh, that, that that's really, really, really bad. But we become guilty of sin, and we are condemned because of it. The scriptures say that, that we have this condemnation upon us and that all of us have failed to live up to God's standard. And that means that we are alienated from him, that our relationship with him is broken. God, in his perfection, his, his perfectness cannot abide anything that is not perfect. And so when we break his standard... When we break his rules, we break our relationship with him because he's holy and perfect and righteous. And so the bad news of the good news is that we are condemned because of our sin and separated from God. Even worse is to discover that because we are part of a a race of, of people, because we are human beings, our, our sin has been transmitted down through the generations. That, that we are fallen and separated from God. This principle of bearing fruit is, is true of us too. If our parents are spiritually dead, and all human beings are, then they pass on their spiritual deadness to us. God has no grandchildren. Their, their spiritual life isn't passed down through uh, parents to their children. Physical life is, but not connection with God. So there's condemnation and alienation. And then the scriptures use this ultra fancy word to describe who Jesus is when he's sent to be the solution for our sins. It uses the, the word propitiation. Propitiation. It's a great word, right? Good luck trying to insert it into daily conversation. But I would challenge you to use it. Because if you're going to use it, then you're sharing the gospel, right? Uh, propitiation is an offering which is given to turn away wrath. That's, that's given to erase ill will, right? It's, it's something that, that we ourselves cannot come up with in, in terms of our relationship to God. And so God himself, in, in the persons of the Trinity, the, the Father and the Son confer together, and Jesus says, I will be the offering that will turn away our wrath. I will go, and I will live the life that you require. I'll live the way that you require. As a human being, I'll take human nature upon myself, and I'll go and I'll live a perfect life. And then I will suffer their punishment. I will take their place. And so he comes into the world to be our sacrifice for sin. He has to be perfect. He has to be good. He has to never deviate from God's way or God's will in his actions, in his words, even in his intent. It's amazing when you, when you read through the Gospels and you see the things that Jesus says when he says, I only do what I see my father doing. What, what he desires for me what he commands me to do, that's what I do. 
My will is not to do. My will is to do the will of the one who sent me. He lives that way so that he can be an offering that is a substitute for us. When Jesus goes to the cross and he dies that death that turns away God's wrath, God raises him from the dead because he was perfect, even though he took the death that's deserved for imperfection upon himself. And so God raises him from the dead and says, if you put your faith and trust in him because of his sacrifice, what it is that that he did, if you look to him and you say, I want his death to count for me, I want him to be my substitute, we receive a blessing called justification. When we look to God and we say, I am a sinner, I am condemned and I am alienated and I believe that he took my place to turn away your wrath and I need that because I'm a sinner, the scriptures say that that results in justification where God looks at us and he declares that we are righteous. This is not you're guilty and you're going to spend the rest of your life paying for it or the rest of eternity paying for it or several thousand years in purgatory working off your sins. This is at that moment you are declared righteous, justified. This isn't mercy. This isn't, I'm not going to give you the punishment that you deserve even though I still treat you as guilty. Honestly, if you've ever been in a situation where someone has been merciful to you. Maybe they're showing you mercy, but without the, without the best motives, they continue to remind you of how merciful they've been to you, right? And, and you, you're like, man, I kind of feel like you're treating me like I'm still guilty here. It'd be much easier just to pay the $40 and, and, and be done with it, right? You know, and to, to have it off my, my, my plate than to continue to be reminded. No, what we have here is justification, which is God declaring, because of your faith, I declare that you are righteous. I tell you, I have to remind myself of this over and over and over again. I have to preach the gospel to myself over again to remind myself that he became sin even though he knew no sin, so that when I put my faith and trust in him, I become the righteousness of God. That's what the scripture says. It is an audacious claim. It's one that I think many of us, we, we resist it because it just seems too good to be true. That when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and he takes all of our sin upon himself, that we become the very righteousness of God. We're not kind of righteous like God. He doesn't consider us more righteous than the people around us, like we just kind of get an upgrade to our righteousness, right? It's not, here's uh, Keith, and here's Jesus, who is supremely better in terms of God's view of the two of them. It's that God looks at me because of his own declaration as if I am as righteous as him. Now, if that sounds shocking, like, wait a minute, what? That is why the gospel is an offense to so many. That's what's, that's what's so unbelievable to some. You mean I can do anything? I can live any way I want and then ask for forgiveness and God will give it to me? 
Technically, yes. That's the wild claim of the gospel, that God forgives sinners. That, that God allows those who have lived in a way that he does not approve and he does not accept, he allows them to put their faith and trust in Jesus and have their sins canceled out completely. The record of their wrongs is expunged and deleted Condemnation, alienation, propitiation, and justification. Then fifth comes reconciliation. Mercy is like, all right, son, you know, you, you, you did wrong here in, in driving too fast on the road. We're going we're gonna to let you go, so go away, right? Reconciliation is, even though you've lived in this way, we're going to be friends, we're going to be pals. Now, we might think that's a little weird, right? If some, some police officer, you know, or some judge is like, you know, he bangs the gavel and he's like, you want to come over and watch football? And we'd be like, what's going on here? But that's what the father does. The father says, I will make a way for you to be back in relationship with me. He's not like, you know, I've forgiven your sins. Now stop bothering me. Right? He's like, I have forgiven your sins. Now let's resume our relationship. I will give you what it is that you need to live. You can depend on me and call on me and come to me. I will be there for you. And you will put your faith and trust in me and love those around you. This is what's, what's so interesting. The book of, book of Hebrews says that we are able to draw near to the throne of God in a time of need. Right in a, in a time where we're experiencing a personal spiritual crisis, we're able to go towards God. Our natural instinct is, is very much like Adam's in, in the garden. When we're experiencing need or we're, we're struggling with, with doubt or we're, we're experiencing a craving towards certain kinds of behavior, right? we think, I can't go to God. I, I can't go near to him because, of, because this is not consistent with what he wants from me. But the scripture says because Jesus is a, a merciful priest to us because he understands what we're going through and he's like us in every way except he never sinned, that's why we can draw near to him in a time of need. Lord, I'm struggling. Jesus is like, I know what that's like. I know. Come on. I'll give you help in the middle of your time of need. Our relationship is healed and fixed. And so we begin to go through this last gospel blessing, which is called sanctification, which is by virtue of Christ's death and our forgiveness and receiving this pronouncement that we are righteous and being reconciled in relationship with God. Now we begin to experience being increasingly set apart or changed or transformed into the image of Christ so that we can live the way God calls us to. Because of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life and because we're, we're hearing the word and we're, we're saying yes to that, I, I believe it, we experience transformation. And our behavior begins to change. And things which are difficult in the very beginning of the Christian life in year one get easier. And the more complex and difficult challenges that we have to, to bear up under, we, we begin to be prepared for them. 
When, when we understand that we don't deserve anything good from God at all and that we completely deserve condemnation and separation and nothing good. And then we see that, that God sends Christ to rescue us and to pronounce us righteous and to fix our relationship and then to grow us into whom we're supposed to be. When we understand that, we're motivated to live differently. We choose to live differently when we understand that. So, just a thought here. If we understand that, if we understand the good news about Jesus in that way, is that the way we share it with others? Do we, do we share the gospel by saying, I need God's grace. And here is how I lay hold of it. And here is how he has changed and transformed me. Or instead, do we focus on these first two ideas as the sum total of our gospel message? You are condemned and alienated from God. Sometimes we have a tendency to preach the good news as bad news, right? We share the good news as bad news. We ought to share the bad news. We ought to with people. We ought to be, we ought to be open with them and say, look, this is, this is what I believe. I believe that I deserve to be separated from God because our relationship was broken. But we don't leave it there, right? We say, because of what he's done, he has fixed and restored the relationship, and he can and will do that for you as well. And, and his desire is that you put your faith and trust in him. His desire is that he would fix the relationship. Would you trust him? He will show you grace. He will prove to you that he is good. He will demonstrate in your life that your relationship is healed. And he will change and transform you over time. Many times what we do is we consistently and constantly reprove people for their sins, but don't talk about saving grace and justifying faith. It's important. It's particularly important when we live in a culture where what's broadcasted about the church is that we are judgmental, narrow-minded, and do nothing good. Nothing at all. Which, in fact, is the furthest thing from the truth. To be honest... Most of the Christians that I meet seem like genuinely nice, caring, loving people that are genuinely interested in the good, uh, in, 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 in good coming to other people. But we focus many times on condemnation, I think, because that is what we feel. Because we've not been constant in preaching the gospel to ourselves. Many times we're acting out of a motive of, of earning God's favor by good behavior. When if we put our faith and trust in, in Jesus and we, we consistently reminded ourselves that, that this is the way in which God transforms us, this is, this is the way in which God views us, we would say, boy, I want to get through these ideas of condemnation and alienation talk about the good things that come. Faith, saving faith, centers in a person. Verse 5 says that they put their faith and trust in Jesus. 
Verse 5 talks about the fact that, that faith is, is centered in the word of truth. And verse 5, or sorry, verse 6 says that, that faith is the message of God's grace toward us. And then verse 6 reminds us of the fact that this grace is for the whole world. That includes everyone that you know. Everyone everywhere. But this is something that we're to share with others. And, and we do it in this way. We do it first by growing in our own faith. As we put our trust in, in God and we say, yes, what you are saying to me in your word and what you're calling me to in the way that I live is true. And you can be trusted. And I believe that you are good and worthy of respect and honor and obedience. That's faith. And then I express that towards others in love. Love that serves and shares, but also love that communicates the truth about what's going on in their lives, that's willing to, to vocalize and to share, look, you have a need to put your faith and trust in Christ, and I will share with you and explain patiently so that you can hear it. I'm going to explain it in a way that respects and honors you as a person that God loves. It's important. Uh, a number of years ago, I heard, uh, I can't remember if it was a, a pastor by the name of John Piper uh, or a, a pastor named R.C. Sproul. They, one of the two of them was speaking at a conference, and I, I forget who. Both of these guys are like guys that pastors love to quote and appreciate. And the, like people post things that they say on Facebook. And, you know, it's, they're, 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 like, they're like the A-team, you know. They're like, they're the big names in Christianity today, right? Um, they're, they're folks who, when they speak, people respect what they say. And, and the, story, the story goes like this, that, uh, that, that R.C. Sproul was, was preaching and teaching. He was talking about saving faith, you know? And the idea is that, is that saving faith that, that sustains you throughout the years is, is when you, with your mind and your will and, and everything that's in you, that you say, this message is true. You know, so much so that, that you're willing to rest your whole life on it. And then the story is told about a missionary who was trying to translate the, the gospel or translate the New Testament so that, so that people in this, uh, in this country who didn't speak English could have the Bible in their own language. He was looking for a word. And uh, one day he saw one of these people just kind of flop back into a chair, right, and, and rest in it. They rested their full weight. And he said, what's the word to describe that? And when they said it, he said, that's what I'm going to use as faith, right? Faith is, is being willing to rest your, your full weight on it. Well, John Piper didn't like that. He didn't, he didn't like that, that representation of faith. And so they were at this conference, and R.C. Sproul had just finished preaching and, and teaching that message that way. And he went out on stage, and, uh, and he, he said, look, that's not enough to believe that the chair can hold you, or that it will hold you, or that it's good to hold you, or even that you're willing to sit in the chair. Saving faith says, I am thankful for this chair. This is mine. 
And it is good and it is beautiful. That's a faith that transforms. When we look to God and we say, this is who, this is who I, I was. This is what I deserve. This is what should happen to me. And you're willing to treat me like this? That is amazing. It changes everything. And so uh, Pastor John, as he was preaching, he was like, you have to believe that the chair is beautiful. And he finished and he realized what he had done. Because he's at a conference and the pastor preached before him and he just went out there and undercut this other pastor's message. So he says, I'm walking off stage and, and I'm, I'm wondering when he's going to confront me. And there, as he walks off the stage, is R.C. Sproul, right? Standing there on the side of the stage. And Sproul looks at John Piper and he says, the chair is beautiful. And he like grabs him up in this big hug. And like, you know, if you know, R.C. Sproul, he's not a small guy. Or he wasn't a small guy. He's since gone home to be with the Lord. And John Piper is this like tiny, little, thin, like you could snap him in half kind of a guy. And so he just like, he grabbed him. You know, the chair is beautiful. That's, that's a faith or an, an understanding of the gospel. The good news that says this is good. Just think about it. Who wants to go and pick a bunch of buckets of blueberries if they taste nasty? You know? We go and, and, and pick them. We go and get fruit and, and bring it home and wash it and de-stem it and de-skin it and whatever. We do these things because it tastes good, right? When the gospel... When the good news comes to us and we receive it and believe in it, it produces good and we grow in it and we press ourselves into it and we enjoy it and we delight in it because of its goodness. We grow in it when we love it. We grow in it when we're excited about it. We grow in it when we understand it in truth. As we think about the hope that's before us, this is, this is where we'll finish. Uh, Warren Wearsby talks about the fact that when he was a young Christian, an older friend warned him and said, don't do anything today that would embarrass you if Jesus was coming, coming back, right? Like, don't do anything you wouldn't want to be caught doing if, if Jesus was coming. And, and he said that, that that was a negative view of heaven, that Jesus coming was going to be a source of condemnation for him. Instead... He said that his view shifted and changed to the point where he said, if I am thankful for what God has done for me, then I ought to keep my life clean and ready and excited at the fact that Jesus will return. Because this is the the thing of greatest value is knowing that, that he will return. And when he returns, am I living in such a way that I'm acting like I'm thankful for what he's done? Has, has what he's given me changed the way that I'm living? Has, has the fruit, has the seed grown into fruit? This is, this is not about guilt, and it's not about all the things that you could have done or should have done to earn his favor. Instead, it's about has Saving faith produced a love and a dependence and a, a, a delighted response to what God has done. And does it express itself in the way that we treat other people, the way that we love them and talk to them and share with them?
does the, the fruit that's been planted within, cucumber, blueberry, strawberry, right? Cucumber is not a fruit. I'm sorry, it's a vegetable. Does it, does it produce the same thing that was planted? Does God's love and grace produce lives of love and grace in us? That's the test. That's what will earn us a reputation as those who love God and love others. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I pray that, that, that we would not filter this through the grid of, am I good enough? Because the gospel teaches us that, no, we are not good enough. We could never live up to your standard because you are perfect and we are imperfect. And therefore, we have failed before we even start. The truth is that we fall short of your standard in word and thought and deed each and every day. But the good news is that Jesus lived that standard for us. And therefore, because our sins have been canceled out, we are free to grow in love and gratitude and faith and the expression of your goodness and your grace in every aspect of our lives. I pray that that would be our reputation as believers. Not that they're perfect, not that they're better than others, but instead that they love and appreciate what God has done for them and they live like it's true. Father, let us be those who are known for our faith and known for our love, both for one another and for you and the hope that's been built up in heaven because of, of the good things that you've done for us. Lord, may we be those who reflect your goodness, your grace, your kindness in the world that's around us. And I pray that, that, that those who interact with us would see your character in us and that they would respond to the good news as we share it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.